You're on the panel on RNZ National. Lovely to have you company. Here we have Raj Chakraborty and Joe McHale this afternoon. And uh, the new All Blacks coach, Scott Robinson, is uh, speaking. We talked to um, rugby journalist Jamie Wall uh, just when it was announced before 4pm. But uh, Scott Robinson says uh, it's an honour to be named as the next All Blacks head coach. It's a job that comes with a huge amount of responsibility, but I'm excited by the opportunity to make a contribution to the legacy of the all-black jersey, uh, to represent your country as a coach or player. It's the ultimate honour in sport, and it's humbling to be given that opportunity. I can't wait. So you'll hear more about that on uh, Checkpoint with Lisa Owen. And Michelle says, Wallace, very cold here. This is uh, just uh, uh, keeping an eye out on what's happening in Otago. Rochelle says, very cold here in Sawyer's Bay. Not raining now, but earlier this morning, I watched it coming down in horizontal sheets. Power was out from around 8 to 10 a.m., back on for a while, then out since 1 p.m. I've got winter woolies on to stay warm and hoping I can have a hot meal for dinner tonight. So uh, stay well and warm, Rochelle, and um, stay tuned to the panel. Humanity is on thin ice, and that ice is melting fast. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said, our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. That is a response to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, a massive sixth assessment report, the comprehensive review of human knowledge of the climate crisis took hundreds of scientists eight years to compile runs to thousands of pages, released today. And there was one message, act now or it'll be too late. Concentrations of the warming gas CO2 in the atmosphere is at its highest in two million years. Dr. Daniel Kingston, a senior lecturer at the School of Geography at the University of Otago. Dr. Kingston, welcome. Hi, Kira. So it was described by some as a sort of survival guide uh, assessment. I mean, it's a massive document, isn't it? Act now. What, in your view, are the key elements of this report for our audience today? Well, there there are um, a few key things in there, I suppose. Um, The the message really is, is unequivocal. The the emissions of greenhouse gases are going up. They're being caused by humans. So there's no doubt um, in that respect. And that, that's a really big statement for, for a group of scientists to make, really. Um, the, the time window to act is really narrow. So we can make a difference, but we really need to up our game in terms of making, you know, making uh, these improved policies around greenhouse gas emissions now and improving uh, shedding it back to here i understand that 18 countries have managed to reduce their emissions uh but new zealand is not one of them no new zealand doesn't do that great really per capita we've got one of the highest rates of greenhouse gas emissions in the world so we're, we're not leading in any um in any real respect so here we have a situation where it's uh, the, the, the picture painted is pretty dire, but there are small there is a small window to act, and there are some countries that are acting. We are not. What could we be doing more, Daniel? 
Well, it's not to say that we're not acting at all. There have been some, you know, movements in the right direction over the past few years, you know, in terms of the Zero Carbon Act and, and pledges around moving towards zero carbon. It's just that we're not going fast enough, really. I mean, I, I don't mean to sound cynical about it, Dr. Kingston, but I guess this is, we're seeing this report um, from the UN and it, it almost looks to me like a James Cameron film. You know, time is ticking, we are running out of time. It, it feels so um, dramatic. And at the same time, you know, our, our current Prime Minister is is literally shutting down policy that would have addressed climate change. So, and and, and that's because... I would and I would believe he he thinks it's more politic to just focus on those famous bread and butter cost of living issues. Um, so, do you think people in really will change? I mean, I, do you believe we'll make the changes we need to make as a country and as a species? Well, I hope so. Certainly, it's difficult to say. You know, we get everyday life gets in the way. Um, And we've had an awful lot of everyday life hit us, you know. If if you've been living in the North Island over the past month or so, then, you know, it sounds really horrendous. But part of those problems, part of these everyday life problems caused by these extreme weather events are being made worse by climate change. So, yes, I completely understand, you know, why the focus, why we want to make life easier right now. But we're just piling up the problem. We're making the next problem worse if we don't act and do something now. So it, it does start to sound really dramatic. And, but in a, in a slow burn way, you know, it really is dramatic. What changes should people make? I mean, what would be the individual changes I could make in terms of my diet, how I travel, what I, what I consume? Well, like the, the UN Secretary General said, uh, you know, at the start, it's everything, everywhere, all at once. <laughs> <laughs> everything makes a difference. But, oh, right. it, it, you know, it, it's, it's kind of difficult to conceptualise on an individual level as well. But really, anything you do makes a difference. If you right. take a bath instead of go, go in a car, cut back on your meat consumption or, or dairy, you know... If you, if you buy a you know EV instead of a petrol car next time round, and then it's the job of governments, kind of local to national, to make those decisions easier for us, to make public transport better and more efficient, to to give us kind of price uh, nudges in one direction or another. It's a combined effort, but everything makes a difference. Nothing is uh, inconsequential here. Everything, all at once, Raj Chakraborty. Yeah. Um I really like the report's emphasis on how much still remains in our hands to avert mm. or mitigate. Having said that, I share, I do sometimes feel a despair that no matter what we do as individuals, real transformation can only come when the truly big polluters, you know, the industries and corporations that have the most unsustainable practices, permanently change their behavior. But again, uh, that's not a call for individuals to give up or feel helpless about the role that they can play. Because I think more than ever, there's a real and powerful link between consumer awareness and preferences and how quickly they can change what corporations make and do. So I guess what I'm suggesting is that using the Internet to amplify our voices and our demands for change and recognizing the urgency of this moment, 
we we individuals need to bring a bit of cancel culture to corporations products and even government policies that refuse to heed this call for change yeah, I, I agree with um, what you're saying, Raj, there, because um, I think what will make a really significant um, improvement in the change, the rate of change we're seeing in New Zealand is when the products that we sell overseas um, start to be less desirable to consumers because of the rate of emissions um, per capita in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree with that. You know, companies want to sell stuff to people, so if people don't buy it, then they'll stop making it. Politicians want to get elected. So if we, you know, tell them what we want, then they will adjust their policies to match what, what people want. So, so it is, we do have a lot of power in the situation. Just finally, Dr. Kingston, uh, I just want to bring this up because, you know, there will, and you have seen it, haven't you? I guess maybe uh, it's been discussed whether or not this is uh, on the back of the how do you call it, the conspiracies post-COVID, there has been a bit of pushback uh, on climate change. Some might call it a bit of denialism here. But you have stressed that what this massive document shows, hundreds of scientists, thousands of pages, eight years to compile, it shows that human activity unequivocally causes global temperatures to rise. Do you want to explain that? Um yeah, that's right. And that core message hasn't changed substantially since the first IPCC report in 1990 that humans are causing more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and that's causing higher temperatures. So this, this report, you know, has been a long time coming, but it's saying much the same things at its core that we already knew. We're just adding extra details around the edge of that in terms of exactly how much warming we're looking at and what the effects are going to be, you know, around storms, around sea level, food production, and, and so on. So this is really kind of well-established science. Good to have you on, Dr. Daniel Kingston there, uh, Senior Lecturer at the School of Geography, Otago University. Uh, so at least 18 countries, including the US, have managed to reduce their emissions for more than a decade. Uh, this report finds while the costs of solar panels, wind turbines, lithium-ion batteries have plummeted, uh, but New Zealand is not one of those uh, 18 countries. Here on the panel, uh, NZ National, we have Joe McCarroll and Raj Chakraborty with us this afternoon. 18 past four. Now, another big news uh, today, a second part of an investigation into political lobbying by RNZ's Guy Espiner, this time focusing on lobbying by alcohol companies, and revealed the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Andrew Curtin, was previously part of a lobbying firm which worked for alcohol companies that pushed back against a proposed container return scheme. Now, we talked about that yesterday on the show. Curtin resigned from that role on 31st of January, one day before taking the job as Hipkin's chief of staff. And six weeks after Curtin started in the Prime Minister's office, the government announced it would delay this container return scheme. But Chris Hipkins told Morning Report the container return scheme had already been offered up for reprioritization, quote unquote, before Curtin started working in the Beehive. With us to discuss this issue of lobbying, this time by alcohol companies, we have Professor Boyd Swinburne. He's the chair of Health Coalition Aotearoa, which is an alliance of over 60 health organisations. Professor Swinburne, welcome. Kia ora, Wallace. 
What did you make of this item here? So this is part two in a um, series on lobbying in general, this time alcohol. Does this resonate uh, with any experiences that you may have had? Oh, absolutely, it resonates, and it is pulling the uh, curtain aside so that we can see this huge uh, gap in our regulatory um, management of lobbying. So it is a broad democracy issue, but it really has large impact on health, and that's what Health Coalition Aotearoa is concerned about, because when you add up the effect of tobacco and alcohol and ultra-processed food, that contributes to about one-third of our total premature disease and death. And so it's a huge um, burden on the, on the population. And we know what needs to happen from reports from WHO and from expert groups and so on. Um, there's just a whole stack of reports, and they just don't get implemented by successive governments. And we have long seen overseas and in New Zealand the impact of commercial lobbying on preventing these policies coming out and getting into light. And I think what uh, the Exposure Radio New Zealand has been doing has really been shining a light on this and showing the need for some action on uh, on this. And the, uh, the Health Coalition has been uh, working on this for the last several weeks. In fact, we had a, a, a workshop a few weeks ago to try to identify what the top priority actions needed to protect public policy making and um, so we definitely need legislation to regulate lobbying we definitely need better management of the commercial conflicts of interest and we need to extend the oia uh, legislation to make more transparency available Let's go to the panel, Joe. Do you think, um, Professor Swinburne, we've just been sort of dangerously naive about this? I mean, that's what I thought upon hearing some of the reports that, that um, Guy Nespino has been putting out. Y- you know, um, you think of lobbying as being an American thing, at least I do, um, whereas that idea that someone's basically got their thumb on the scale when it comes um, to making these changes, um, and, and, and it's people, it's no one no one particularly surprising, you know, it's the alcohol industry, it's ultra-processed food, it's the supermarket duopoly, but they're making decisions that are going to maximise their profits, and they're not making decisions that are going to um, make better choices, make better public health outcomes. Oh, absolutely, Joe. I think dangerously naive is a good description, and when you look around at other OECD countries, Ireland, UK, Canada, Australia, they all have uh, examples of lobbying uh, laws to, to protect policy making against the lobbying and in New Zealand we have nothing so I really think that we need to take the best of those laws and bring them in and apply them in New Zealand so that we end up with better democracy outcomes and better health outcomes. Right, yes uh, Prime Minister Chris Hopkins was questioned quite a bit about this this afternoon but uh, no decisions uh, or uh, anything of material as yet Raj, let's bring you in Yeah, and I completely agree with Joe's characterization as well. I mean, I was stunned to see that, for example, the difference between uh, Canada's cooling off period for someone to move from the world of lobbying to the world of politics is up to five years. And in New Zealand, it's zero days. So so perhaps we thought we were immune to this. And it's it's a practice that happens in bigger countries. and spe- speaking to the specifics of the container return scheme, I feel really, yeah. really surprised that it was walked back in the, quote, reprioritization because container return schemes have been in operation in some parts of the world for decades now, including Australia. 
And the cost of living impact argument that it might add, say, 20 cents to the cost of beer or wine or Coca-Cola, that doesn't really wash because perhaps we should be nudging people to consume slightly less of each of these things. And I think this particular issue is a slightly is a strange own goal from the prime minister because you're leaving yourself open to quite a serious charge of conflict of interest, but for quite a small thing, which has become normal practice in parts of the world for a long time now. Yeah. Boyd? Sorry, yes, I I totally agree with you. I think it is uh, disingenuous, his comments about uh, cost of living as the excuse for ditching this, but not only this um, policy, but also the alcohol sponsorship policy, saying that it would increase uh, cost of living. Um, That, I think, is just a furphy, and you do wonder what's happening behind the scenes uh, in this dark lobbying space that is causing these policies to be dropped. Boyd, just on another note, though, is it such a surprise that large companies, whoever they are, will want to advocate for their cause? You know, they're in the business of selling, in this instance, alcohol. They'll be wanting to make conditions amenable to selling their product. Is it really so strange that you might uh, get access via the comms or a text to a minister and to say, look, do you want to catch up? Let's explore the issues. I mean, what's so wrong with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's an argument that, that comes out. And, you know, companies uh, in, a democr- in a democracy do have access to try to influence yeah. policy. The issue is how excessive their influence is compared to groups advocating for um, societal benefits or environmental benefits or whatever. Usually the commercial lobbying is far, far out of proportion to the advocacy on behalf of society or the environment. And that's the balance that needs to be redressed. Because there's no legislation or no systems or policies in place, it's just um, free, it's just open slather for the for the lobbyists and uh, it's really just bringing that balance back to supporting um, supporting good public policy making, good right. integrity. Yeah, and you're in the situation, um, Boyd, where you've got um, incredibly well-resourced, incredibly highly skilled, um, lawyered to the teeth kind of organisations um, who and and they're going up against sometimes, you know, community boards, sometimes, you know, local residents associations who are working in their own time. They don't necessarily have the same skill set. It's not a fair fight. Very good. Um, Professor thank you for your time there. That's um, Boyd Swimber there, Chair of the Health Coalition on that second part of investigation into political lobbying by RNZ's Guy and Espiner. Well worth the read, just check rnz.co.nz. It's up the front there. 27 past four, and have we had a response to this? It came up as an email. I simply asked, should you push a child to keep going with, say, music lessons, even if they do not want to? Or should you give them the choice? Do you get forced to do things, or did you when you were a kid? And to what extent should we listen to the child? Uh, Someone says here, very tricky question you ask, but hang in there if you can. My 10-year-old complained about guitar lessons with his brilliant rock star teacher. I ignored all the moaning. Now at 14, he's devoted, hoovering up any information he can. A hard-bitten Rolling Stone magazine devotee and building his own guitar. 
Someone here says, piano was compulsory in our family. I was grateful. Children don't necessarily always know what's best for them. There are always there are ways that we can get our children to take part without forcing them. We can make things fun, model desired behaviours and such like. Another one here, if you force your kids into music lessons and not respect their thoughts, expect them to be susceptible to being forced into other activities as a teen, like getting in a car with someone who's been drinking or trying drugs when they don't want to. Respect your kids' autonomy. Well, I might um, just raise my hand at that because um, I am a child who was very much um, expected to engage in a range of extracurricular activities, as were my sisters. We were we did every kind of dance class. We learned a range of musical instruments. We did, uh, you know, we, we all did speech and drama, for me, for more than a decade. Um, and I, I mean, I think you've got to be realistic about the child you have, but... You know, if they're really uninterested in something, maybe don't force them to do it. But I don't think kids are developmentally capable of making great decisions that will benefit them in the long term. Um, I think learning all of those things. I don't. I don't dance now. I don't play musical instrument now. Dragging but, them to music lessons when they don't want to. I think is it not progressive? Is it cruel in the modern age? I don't. Um, I, I don't recall being dragged, but I definitely was fairly reluctant, especially about ballet. But I love going to the ballet now. I don't know if I'd have the same appreciation of it now. And I think everything you learn um, is an opportunity for growth. I think learning things like music and dance, you learn language, you learn history, you learn. I think you learn science and maths. Okay, all right. So that's uh, Raj Joe says compulsion for kids, even if they don't want to. Um, Your thoughts. This is a slightly tough one. So I will concede that coercion into doing activities and putting in hours of practice that kids might not be into at the time can yield results down the line and even change the child's mind. But I personally am still against that initial coercion and speaking personally, have refrained from it as a parent. Have you? Yeah. And I'd say especially if there is repeated resistance So I'd say, I think as with food, you can introduce a child a number of times to something that you might think is good for them, but repeated resistance is telling you that at this moment, your child does not want to do that. And maybe it is better to be led by what they are interested in, because the chances are that much higher that they're going to learn and enjoy themselves much more without the inner resistance. Um, I just, but, but I just, my, my own view here, were dragged, kicking and screaming. In fact, it said, "You've got one week," <laughs> uh, and we said, "No way." My brother now, he saw, he's a professional violinist in the US. So uh, again, I admit we wouldn't have many of the high-performing prodigies and virtuosos we do in various fields if their parents had probably not been coercive to some degree. But repeated coercion is still not for me. Well, I'll tell you what, you almost go the opposite where I was, one of my nieces was saying she couldn't do something and she's only a teenage girl because she, she's missed the boat for starting. And to that I would say that my Aunt Anne has taken up ballet in her 70s. She didn't wow, do ballet okay. lessons as a kid, so it's never too late to start. Okay, yep, all right, going off here, should you force the kids to do something that they don't want to do uh, for the betterment of later in life? Text me at 2101. You're on the panel, RNZ National.